My name is Sadia. And I'm Omer. You're tuning in to Oats for Breakfast. Which is an eco-socialist podcast, usually based in Toronto. If you tune into the last episode, you'll know that we're currently based in Lahore, Pakistan. We got here in late February, shortly before the COVID-19 situation exploded to the point of becoming a global pandemic. And since we've been experiencing the unfolding of the crisis while being in the Global South, we thought it might be worthwhile to chat about our personal experience, as well as about the broader political and social dynamics that are playing out in our surroundings. Remember to subscribe to Oats for Breakfast. And if you're on iTunes, please rate and review the podcast. Also remember that you can become a supporter of the podcast by going to patreon.com forward slash oats for breakfast. So um, one of the things different about this recording is that since we're doing it in the subtropics and it's a bit warm today, the window is open here in this room. And so you might hear birds and outside noises a little bit once in a while. Hopefully that won't be too distracting. If anything, it it might be uh, pleasant. Especially in contrast with the discussion material about to get into. That's true. So I guess maybe to start off with, we could give a sense of our, our own personal situation. You know, why we're here and what's been going on with us, uh, what quarantine here looks like and and what we're still doing here <laughs> well i guess when we first got here covid19 didn't seem to be an immediate threat our first preoccupation when we got here actually was how bad the pollution was in fact as soon as we stepped off the plane the heaviness of the almost sulfuric air hit us really hard this was at 3 a.m. in the morning. Yeah, there's definitely some sulfur in that air. The air quality here in the city is really bad. Most people are familiar probably with the kind of terrible air quality in many cities in China. But South Asia is similar, if not worse. And Lahore is especially subject to really bad air quality in the winter months. So Lahore gets uh, very visibly smoggy. Uh, and you can taste the air. But we we got here right around the end of what's called the smog season. So that's no longer the case. Uh, Their quality has improved. Oh, sort of back to back, you know, just when we were feeling like maybe we could actually go for a walk outside or open the window and breathe the air outside. Then we realized, oh, we got to stay inside because of Corona. Yes, well, well, I mean, we could still open the window. Yeah. And we still go for brief walks in the neighborhood. Well, that's mostly because this neighborhood, it's a suburb of Lahore. And so the population density is very minimal. Aside from, well, it's a contrast, I guess, between the actual suburb and the surrounding villages. And the villages there, the population density is quite, quite intense. Yeah, but it's normal for the region. Yeah. Yeah, so, okay, I think we... Did we get here on February 27th? Or is that the day we left Toronto? Our flight was on the 26th, but because it was at night, 
might even have been on the 28th that we got here because of the the time difference. But in any case, it's either the 27th or 28th. Right. So, okay. So, but we left Toronto on the 26th. Yes. Well, that was the first, the 26th was the first day when Pakistan confirmed, you know, that it that there were cases, I think one or two cases of COVID-19. So we left Toronto on that very same day. Ah, got so here, fateful. Yeah, got here just in time. And w- the reason we're here is because we're visiting my parents who live here. So that was the, the occasion of our visit. And we were going to be here a while anyway, but uh, uh, th- we, weren't, uh, we weren't thinking it was going to be under these circumstances. Yeah, and I'd signed up for uh, the Canadian Embassy's notifications for people being in Pakistan or citizens being in Pakistan. And so by about mid-March, we started receiving increasingly excitable emails from the Canadian Embassy in Islamabad which encouraged citizens in Pakistan to return to Canada as quickly as possible. At that point, I think Pakistan had already started to limit international flights. And because of the tones of the Canadian embassy's emails, we started feeling, okay, maybe we should head out quickly as well. But then we looked at the prices of the flights that were being offered, and they were exorbitant. It was something like three times the amount that we had paid for a one-way ticket to get here. It would have cost us to get on one of those flights to get back. Yeah, like some of them were like $3,000 or something. Mm-hmm. And so obviously we can't afford that. So we couldn't leave right away. But honestly, I mean, I didn't necessarily feel like... I mean, we'd been following gener- like we'd been following the the developments in COVID-19 situation, even while the Canadian embassy wasn't sending us emails, right? And even when they started sending those emails that were somewhat alarmed, I personally, you know, didn't feel right away. And I don't know if I feel it still, the the need to kind of rush out and, you know, get out of the country. I don't know. It Just the image of like a disaster taking place, somewhere in the global south and all of the westerners being you know lifted out i don't i don't necessarily want to have anything to do with that like this isn't like obviously this is a very serious situation but it's not the fall of saigon or something where all of the uh, americans and their allies in the city are being airlifted out well yes you you did you did express your discomfort at being put in this situation of I guess not. it's not a new privilege because we already, in all aspects of our lives, are different from the vast majority of people living in the global south. And so this is merely another indication of leaving. And even if we stayed, which we would have stayed if not for your parents, we would still be in a bubble of relative protection. Yeah. Um, so we, whereas we couldn't, book a flight back right away we did find flights that are later in may that were relatively less expensive though still not the kind of thing you'd find under normal normal circumstances so we do have our ticket booked well we'll just have to see whether we can actually leave when the time comes yeah because one of the things is that um, the pakistani government keeps 
canceling all uh, international flights in and out of the country. And so even though some of these flights that are repatriating the citizens uh, of the global north, they are going through, but largely it has been sort of a wait and see kind of game of whether who's going to be able to leave or not. Yeah, and the other thing that happened is the Canadian government or the Canadian embassy here. So many of the flights that are now going to Canada from here, they're being flown because of the negotiations that the embassy has taken up with the national flight carrier, right? The Pakistan International Airways. But the the Canadian embassy, I think, also chartered another plane that, I don't know, they didn't specify where that was from. Um, and they emailed us, I think, like two days before that flight was going to take off to say, you know, there are a few hundred places on this airplane. If you'd like to go to Canada, you know, you can pay, was it like 300,000 rupees, which is almost... It's more than $3,000. Oh, so it was more than 300,000 rupees. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, it was a very expensive deal. <laughs> um, so they said, if you need to get out of the country, uh, if you're especially vulnerable, et cetera, et cetera. Here's a flight we've arranged, but also, you know, you have to give us this many thousands of dollars. So it was a bit of a, a contradictory message. And like, obviously the people at the embassy are working under very difficult circumstances, but I, I would just think that, um, so I don't need to be out of the country right away. I'm not particularly vulnerable, but if someone is particularly vulnerable, and needs to leave the country, then I would hope that the cost of the flight wouldn't stop them. If anything, it you know would have made sense to, for it to just have a nominal fee just so that those people who are especially vulnerable, who can't stay here, who don't have a safe space, safe place to stay where they could remain quarantined or, or get the help that they need, that those people could be flown back home. But, but yeah, the way it was done, it, I didn't really necessarily think it was all good but yeah i mean i guess the the, the only kind of um solution that the canadian embassy offered in light of these kind of burdensome travel charges is that there's an option for canadian citizens stuck abroad to apply to a f- get a five thousand dollar up to five thousand dollar loan from the canadian government to cover expenses like flights and other travel accommodations yeah and you looked into that right I did look into that and there's a questionnaire that you have to fill out which basically asks you where else have you tried to get the money? Have you tried to ask relatives or have you tried to put it on your credit card? And how much exactly? Why do you need this money? So yeah, it's unclear how accessible that $5,000 loan is. So we're probably not going to end up applying for it because it just seems like it's too much trouble. But anyway, that's uh, that's about us who are Canadians. I think you're probably not the only one who doesn't feel any urgency to leave because there's some within your network of family, friends, and extended family who also don't really see this as that much of a urgent situation. Well, I certainly see the pandemic as yeah, extremely but, urgent. I mean, and the I'm... conclusion is the same, even though you know the assessment of the situation might be different between you and them. Is it the same? Well, just to say that there isn't necessarily like a good an assessment of how bad COVID-19 has already gotten or is about to get in Pakistan. Yeah, I, I guess not. 
And part of it, I guess, has to do with um, the fact that, well, things, you know, in the immediate sense, the facts and figures aren't as bad. So at the moment, I think there's about 7,000 cases here. And the date today is April 18th. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, based on that. And people here keep saying that, well, that's, uh, you know, a fraction of the number of cases there are in Canada, which is true. Which is true. But, you know, Canada had 7,000 cases at one point, and now it has more than 30,000. Yeah. That's the power of exponential growth. But, I mean, I think it's the difference is being understood in more essentialist terms, that there is something essentially different between Canada and Pakistan and, and its, its respective populations, which gives many Pakistanis some sort of immunity, some sort of hardy disposition that Canadians just don't seem to have and therefore have been more susceptible to COVID-19? Well, there's that or there's, you know, talk about, well, maybe we just have like a different strain of the virus here that's not as uh, virulent, it doesn't spread as fast, or maybe the warmer weather is resulting in. I mean, there's lots of different ways people are trying to explain that. But in general, it seems to me that we're following the same trend as elsewhere in the world, you know, like it seems like the world was watching as things got very bad very suddenly in Italy, for instance, and just sort of, you know, side-eyeing and saying, well, we don't have it that bad. I wonder why it's so bad in Italy. And then it got really bad in Iran. And, you know, once again, it was like, oh, well, that's, that's terrible. We don't have it that bad here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was like, instead of that resulting in governments and, and the broader population sort of coming to the realization that there needed to be some preparation made. A lot of the time, there was a lot of dilly-dallying and preparation wasn't made. Now, the difference here is that actually, at the level of the state, there is an attempt to make preparations and has been now since mid-March which means that, you know, if the first case arrived here at the end of February and efforts to deal with the crisis began in mid-March, that that's a very, in relative terms, that's a quite a rapid response. The problem, of course, is that the state doesn't necessarily have the same capacities as, uh, as maybe a Western state would. Yeah, because in relative terms, the state here, starting especially with the southern provinces which saw which initially saw a significant spike in numbers they started putting down lockdown measures fairly quickly and more recently there's been like attempts by the state to provide some sort of relief as well to some of the poor and it seems like the reason why the southern provinces of Pakistan got uh, the initial spike was because they saw a return of a number of pilgrimage attendees of the minority Shia sect who went to Iran for pilgrimage just as COVID-19 was breaking out in Iran. But since then, there's been the position that initially COVID-19 came into Pakistan through the minority Shia pilgrimage doers. Um, we haven't seen that sort of transit into overt violence against them or targeting, but in sort of casual conversations with people, that seems to come up. I've seen it be mentioned, but 
the other thing is that they're not the only ones who brought in COVID-19. It was also actually the first person to die in the country as a result of the virus was someone who'd come back from Saudi Arabia. So, I mean, there's there's multiple points uh, through which the virus came in. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think there have been also cases of like someone coming from the UK. And so it has been much more scattered points of entry. But I think in terms of the narrative, the informal narrative that's been circulating does tend to place a certain kind of burden on the pilgrimage attendees from Iran. Some le- on some level, there is scapegoating of the minority Shia community. Yeah, and I think that dynamic is playing out uh, and will play out more here and elsewhere in the world. I mean, in India, we see that playing out quite a bit now. So India, of course, is right next door. And people will probably have seen some things about what's been happening in India because it's such a large country. And some of the things have been quite jarring to see. So yeah, it'd be good. I think we could chat a bit about that from our perspective here. Yeah, there's so much going on in India. I guess to to pick up on the point about minorities, even before COVID-19 broke out, and I guess it's been a long-running theme of anti-Muslim kind of hysteria in India, and the latest round has seen one group of Muslims in particular were known as the Tablighi Jamaat um, be blamed for spreading, for intentionally spreading COVID-19, even as a form of um, jihad, of, of martyrdom, you know, and Indian media and pundits have been uncritically spewing some of this these conspiracy theories that are very dangerous and have led to violence against Muslims in India. So that theme is is yeah continuing, I guess. And I think it's really unfortunate, but I mean I it's I guess it's to be expected. Not to say not to play along in the narrative of uh, you know, just Muslims being particularly irresponsible. It seems like a running theme that religious leaders in many parts of the world, including the US, you know, have flagrantly violated any attempts to try and contain the spread of COVID-19. Yeah, this has been a common theme across much of the world. I think starting with Korea, right? Most of the cases or many of the cases in Korea are, are linked to that strange Christian cult. I forget the name of the cult. I don't know. Should I call it a cult? It kind of seems like a cult. Seems like a cult. Anyway, I think what we've seen around the world, including here, the U.S. and in places in Europe, is that you know you don't have to be part of a cult for you know your religious leaders or cult leaders to insist on doing irresponsible things, and for congregants obviously to to take part. Um, I mean, I think uh, we do have to kind of try to come to terms with that without obviously scapegoating people that follow all the people who follow any particular religion or cult. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Even though by calling it a cult, you're kind of throwing them under the rug. Well, no, but I'm, what I'm doing is also saying that, you know, maybe they're not that different. Right. Yeah. Anyway. Well, in, in I think uh, a point that you'd made earlier about what we're seeing in terms of the inconsistent approaches of various states towards their religious groups or large religious organizations. And certainly in Pakistan, that's been a difficult state, uh, difficult thing for the state to manage of 
trying to impose a ban on congregational prayers or to say that amidst the lockdown, mosques should also be closed. That's been a difficult thing. Yeah, the state has so far been unable to do that. And I think that has something to do with the the nature of the relationship that the Pakistani state has with the uh, religious clergy. Yeah, because people are then you know, trying to contrast the Pakistani state's approach to that of you know other Muslim-majority states, especially in the Arab world, where even a state like Saudi Arabia has, and all over the Gulf, they've uh, shut down mosques. Yeah, the Saudis have shut down all of their mosques. Iran has shut down all of its mosques. I mean, I think everywhere, practically everywhere in the majority Muslim world. Um, and it's interesting that the one standout state is Pakistan, which is a state that was founded at least on secular nationalist principles and not on religious principles. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's interesting that states that are, whose existence is very much tied to religious clergy, uh, states like Iran and, and Saudi Arabia, which are to an extent clerical states, uh, have had an easier time, have had no problem, in fact, shutting down their mosques, whereas the Pakistani state is so beholden to its clergy that it, it can't do the same thing. Yeah, in fact, you know, in, in the southern province of Sindh, there's been instances of police officers trying to prevent people from entering mosques for congregational prayers, and those police officers getting beaten up by gangs of very devout people. Yeah, so I think part of that, part of this has to do with the overall weakness of the state and the overall lack of legitimacy that the state has uh, among much of the population and the particular nexus of support that the state relies on or the governing governing sort of coalition at the moment relies on. Uh, you know, they, they the, the government of Imran Khan who is the current prime minister, relies on the support that some prominent or many of the prominent religious figures in the country give him. Because that is one node of the nexus of support that this government has, and the other is the other prominent node is the military. So I think part of the explanation for why it hasn't been possible for the state to uh, force the closure of mosques is because the clergy are are important for the continuing uh, legitimacy of of the current government right and you know with the you would think that one of the ways that the government might be able to to gain legitimacy at a time like this is if it could show that it's able to to take care of its population and and among the problems that's been with the lockdown not just of related to mosques but also of other sort of economic activities has been the large numbers of daily wage laborers who have protested against the lockdown and said, you know, they're going to starve. And so when the government tries to put down a lockdown but doesn't provide any relief efforts or substantial enough relief efforts, then it further loses legitimacy and the overall sort of public health aims of trying to contain the virus seem to just not be taken as seriously by the population. 
Yeah, and here I again I think people will perhaps have seen I I don't necessarily know what people in Canada and the US uh what sort of information they're getting about the global south. But I imagine that uh, news from India is is, you know, fairly common and the images of the tens of thousands of migrant workers trying to leave Delhi will probably be something people have seen. Uh but yeah, so that's an issue here as well though it's been a bit different so in india what happened is the central government of narendra modi decided that there was going to be a countrywide lockdown uh didn't really make preparations for how it was going to be you know called what was going to happen to all the people who who lack housing or have precarious housing and who who are daily wage earners and part of the lockdown also involved shutting down the transportation network in the country. So in India I think you know 20% of the labor force is made up of migrant laborers so you know mi- laborers who are internal to the country but they come from villages to the the cities uh, like Delhi and Mumbai and elsewhere and many of them rely on informal contracts or you know they they seek work on a daily basis so they go to a job site work as construction workers for instance and if they're not making a, a daily wage then they're not eating uh and so you know these are this is tens of millions of people who are all of a sudden stranded in these cities where they don't have an access to income anymore and therefore don't have access to food and so a lot of them started to trek back to their villages which was obviously literally oh. on foot in many cases yeah and one of the themes the common refrains that you'd hear uh when this was covered and and people were asked about what was happening they would say well it looks like we're going to die of hunger before we die of the virus and i think that's one of the themes that kind of recurs ar- across much of the global south you know people saying that they're more afraid of the hunger that's going to start setting in uh than they are of the virus at this point yeah and you know whether it's because of the different timelines or because of uh, you know lack of testing etc in much of the global south like we haven't really seen the same kind of numbers of cases every as we've seen in in the US or in in Europe and so numerically it seems like the suffering so far uh has been much more acutely on the economic front as a result of the corona containment measures than from the virus itself. Yeah, that definitely seems to be the case and there are efforts so it's not necess- it's not completely the case that the state hasn't s- stepped in to try to provide some social provisioning that has happened. I mean in, it's happened here and it's happened in India and elsewhere, but obviously that provisioning is incomplete in in general you know the state states in the global south lack the ability to respond to this kind of crisis yeah and i mean in terms of where we have seen somewhat more effective measures of uh response to corona they've they've involved they've been two pronged on the one hand you know trying to put in place early enough and forcefully enough lockdown measures and then providing social provisioning so that the lockdown measures don't lead to people starving to death but it seems like in the global south where countries you know for a number of different reasons not least of which are 
the foreign debt that they're under and the debt repayments that they're forced to repay and the conditions around them, they do not have the infrastructure or the capacities to do the social provisioning at a wide enough scale, a thorough enough scale, which then means that for many of the poor, they cannot stay at home. They have to go out to make sure that their kids don't starve. So instead, what the states, in many cases of the global south, the states have been going really hard on the policing and the lockdown measures. Yeah, and and once again, I I think people may have seen videos or f- photographs of, especially from India. I don't mean to like target India here constantly. I just imagine that. But we're in Pakistan, so we kind of have to do that as a patriotic duty. Is that it? I I don't know. Well, I just imagine like it's you know the uh, one of the largest countries in the world. Uh, if someone's gonna f- see something from the global south anywhere, it's gonna be about India. In any case, uh, people will have seen, you know, perhaps video of the police in India, you know, being violent towards people who are outside and and being overzealous in in trying to maintain a lockdown. So this is, uh, India is not the only place this is happening, just so that people don't think that Indians are especially. (laughs) Yeah, apparently in Kenya, uh, police brutality has been, uh, to the extent that there's been documentation of it, so far... There are, at the last I checked, there were 11 deaths recorded from like the virus itself, but 12 deaths reported at the hands of the police trying to enforce curfews and, and lockdowns. And that you know includes the police killing a 13-year-old boy who was standing outside on his balcony um, during curfew hours. Yeah, so I think the way you framed it is actually really good that a response an adequate response would require a lockdown and it would also require social provisioning so that people can continue to live in their homes. But where the social provisioning can't be provided or isn't being provided, then the lockdown is being enforced all the more harshly. And here and in India, for instance, the police know how to impose a curfew. I don't know if that they know how to impose a lockdown because obviously, you know, you hear stories about people who are just out getting groceries or something or getting medicine and then the police sort of overreact and, and start beating them with sticks. Yeah, and uh, I mean, to, for, to add to like the economic aspects of corona, um, in the global south, I guess the other thing that's different from the global north is that Many people rely on remittances from family members working in other parts of the world to be able to survive. You know, in in Latin America, for example, so much of the the economies depend on remittances. In fact, the Mexican president had um, gone on air recently to appeal to Mexicans who are or migrant workers, Mexican migrant workers in the U.S to appeal to them to say that, please don't forget your loved ones. And so keep sending remittances, which of course, you know, it's a difficult thing to do both for the migrants in the global north, um, because they've been sent home, they've been furloughed, they're already in usually in low wage industries. And then the people depending on them in their home countries, they just can't get that money. 
Yeah, so overall, obviously, this is going to be really difficult for states in the global south to deal with. And I think, you know, that's so far been missing from the discussion about this or most of much of the discussion about this. And it just means that in the end, the prevailing inequalities in the world are only going to deepen. And the powerful actors in the world and the institutions that manage global order are really only going to act ultimately in ways that uh, further secures the inequalities that exist. And we've already seen this sort of play out with how the U.S. has uh, related to Iran during the crisis. And so, you know, further turning in the screws, uh, imposing uh, harsher sanctions. But I don't think that this is completely out of the ordinary. In fact, this is just how things function. And they function, you know, in within the, the so-called liberal world order. It doesn't require uh, someone as crass as Trump to bring this sort of thing about. I mean, this is the the way that, you know, the international financial institutions, the World Bank, the IMF in particular, turn in the screws whenever a poor country has has an economic crisis and they come, they say, okay, well, we can give you this loan, but these are the conditionalities that you have to mm-hmm. adopt. And then, you know, they, they're forced to to cut back on 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 social provisioning further. Uh, and And that's part of the reason why so many countries in the global south are in a position where, they don't have the capacity to respond to this crisis in any way that uh, will actually have have an effect. But I do think, you know, uh, before we uh, sort of close, we probably should close soon because we've been going a while, but I think it probably makes sense to, to at least point to, um, to something hopeful or at least one case that's nearby that's been actually quite positive. And that also actually is in India, in the state, in the southern Indian state of Kerala, where they've had, I think, one of the best records in, in perhaps the world of dealing with the crisis. Yeah, and they've done so because they have, well, they've done so because they're run by communists. And as a result of that political commitment, they've had a very robust healthcare system, but have also ensured, well, they were one of the first ones in the global south to put in place substantial rations for all of their citizens, for all of their residents, um, so that they're able to stay at home. So, so far, I'm just looking at the Kerala government website right now, and as of 6.45 p.m. today, April 18th, there are confirmed 399 cases, and 257 of those have recovered. So there there have been more recoveries than... There are cases and there have only been two deaths. And this despite the fact that I, um, from what I understand, that Kerala had the first confirmed case Mm. uh, of COVID-19 in the country. And so I think they did a good job of doing what you uh, were saying, the framing that you provided of of putting in place a lockdown, but also ensuring that people had uh, the provisions necessary to survive. And, And Kerala, like much of the rest of India also has a significant uh, migrant labor population. And one of the things that they've done is that they've created several thousand places where uh, migrant laborers can stay during the course of the crisis where they're getting access to food and basic needs uh, so that 
Whereas elsewhere in India, you've seen this mass exodus of migrant laborers from cities in Kerala that uh, that hasn't taken place, and and so that means the people haven't, you know, who've who've perhaps contracted the virus while they've been in the cities, they haven't taken the virus back to their villages. So that's, I think, a positive case, and I think it shows that despite the fact that Kerala is not uh, an enormously rich place, and despite the fact that the central government has punished Kerala by giving it the least amount of funding for a COVID response. That's true. They, they've done that because they don't like Kerala. Yeah, that despite those things that it has been able to manage through this crisis, obviously this, this is going to have uh, huge economic and social implications for the state just as anywhere else. But uh, in, in, on the immediate front of containing the spread of the virus, they've, they've done a phenomenal job. And I think it shows that even countries that are relatively quite poor could certainly have managed to contain the virus had they possessed the social provisioning capacities that uh, you know Kerala continues to possess because it's been uh, governed by the communist party for quite a while and where you know neoliberalism hasn't been able to be imposed as harshly as as elsewhere in the global south i think that's a good place to pause for now Yeah, sure. We could pick up from there and continue chatting. Thanks for tuning in to this segment of Oats for Breakfast. We'll be back again next week, so be sure to tune in then as well. Bye.